0: and welcome to Minding Your Mind, all about your mind, how it works, mental illness and mental health. Uh, with me is, of course, Professor Ian Hickey, psychiatrist and co-director of the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. One of the most common perceptions of counselling and therapy is that the counsellor investigates the early influences on your development and see how all that stuff back then might have influenced the person you've turned out to become. What patterns from back then do you continue to repeat, uh, perhaps to your own own detriment. And of course, for most people, the biggest influence on them when they're young is their family. In an earlier ep, for example, author Rick Morton told us how feeling unloved by his father as a child led to him, in his view, being unwilling to open up emotionally to others when he became an adult. An example of how an early family experience can influence us Throughout our lives. Today, then, we examine family dynamics. How do parents, children, siblings, partners influence each other's mental health, both when they all live together and years later? when they don't. Most families, of course, have some conflict, whether it be between parent and child over how much study the kid's doing or what time they should get home on a Friday night. There can be conflict between siblings over, well, anything, between partners over, well, anything. How do families argue and fight? And then so quickly often move on and have dinner together and have a good time and chat and then fight again and then get it back together. Whereas someone you might have a conflict with at work, the tension can last for months. What are toxic relationships in families? Let's discuss all this. Ian, is it fair to say that whilst we might want to sometimes, you can't escape your family? It's such an interesting question.
1: I've just been asked this week, you know, families you can't live with them. But can you kill them? Probably not. You know, can't live without can them, them, as people would classically say. Do they constantly reinforce, and we constantly reinforce in our culture the importance when we people talk anything about people's psychological life, every film, every book, every movie, every theatre piece, there'll be that father-son, mother-daughter, mother-son, father-daughter, whatever thing, sibling relationships, as you said. So people quite rightly see this as a fundamental influence on the development of their emotional and social relationships. These are the fundamental templates that people take into life. It's where it all starts, the attachment stuff, the idea of who you're fundamentally emotionally tied to, what are the bonds that are made. I mean, a lot of the work I'm tied up with neurobiologically, how does the brain make those bonds? How does it reinforce them through the release of things like oxytocin? Which ones really matter? Which ones, you can't help it. Whether you like it or not, you are much more emotionally influenced by them than by random others or even other relationships that you've formed in later life. So whether we like it or not, yes. You know, there's a fundamental nature of creating a template for life through lots of those early experiences. In other work I'm tied up with, you're more alike as a family, as kids, than you're ever going to be like for the rest of your life. That The common environment when you're young overrides a lot of the genetic differences between us all. As we get older, fortunately, we get more different. You know, we can live our lives more separately. But when you're young and you're together and you're dependent, humans, of course, are incredibly dependent little things when they're born. It's a very long time for a human to become an independent entity that can survive in the wider world and then can thrive in the wider world.
0: And is it fair to say that the... the- relationships and bonds within a family, and when I say family, I'm talking about, a, I guess it's called a nuclear family, you know, a parent or two, a kid or two or three, are they somehow different? Like, I, I remember reading somewhere that there is something intrinsic about that relationship that allows you to forgive and move on and not carry grudges, even though you fight with each other every second day.
1: So I'm glad you raised the nuclear family, James, because I'd like to, the course of this episode, blow it up. Okay.
0: <laughs> oh, I know what you're going to say. Grandparents extended, and but, yes, I uh, but I agree with all that. But we will focus a little bit on the nuclear family because it is so common. But
1: it's so queer. It's so unusual. It's so it's an outlier. It's a it's a survivor of our species. It's an outlier, and the Western development of it in the post Second World War period to be very narrow and very isolated, to be two parent or in many situations one parent family, is very unusual. As distinct from the traditional clan, which was transgenerational, which was wider, which was bigger, had more sib ships, had more other groups, which from a child development point of view is optimal. Guess what? We've gone backwards in terms of development. We've gone from something that was quite functional to something that's quite dysfunctional. So you might say it's common, James, but I'm going to say it's problematic <laughs> in terms of actually optimal child development because of this range of relationships, exposure to relationships, exposures to ways of being, and development of empathy, which is critical to relationships. It has made it more intense so that you've got a small number of relationships that are extremely intense between often one or two parents and one or two children in rather small numbers, as it's got smaller and smaller. Mm. The number of relationships and the critical nature of those relationships tend to Uh, have experiences outside those relationships has become more limited. So it is interesting, you're quite right, to focus on it because that's most people's most common experience in the West now. But I want to highlight also, boy, it's weird and it creates expectations. It creates expectations that are actually extremely problematic at times expectations of how important it is so this is you've only got one or two other siblings you've only got parents who've got one or two children everyone's incredibly invested in those relationships in what they should be doing and in their belief that they will determine what actually happens for life as a consequence of a small number of relationships so if they're good if they're tight Great. If people are very secure in those attachments, good. Although they're still rather limited. You've only had experience of a very small number. If they go bad, if they're problematic, then you can also see the risk.
0: So that leads me back to um, the question I started with. Is there something about those close, intense and in your view, (laughs) sometimes weird, probably in everyone's view, sometimes weird, family relationships and bonds. It kind of makes it easier to forgive, to get over conflict, to move on, whereas at work, you know, you might have a little conflict with someone and you're still thinking about it a month later.
1: Yes. So the empathy issue is, you know, even when it goes wrong, you're more likely to understand how, you know. It's more explicable Mm. and perhaps for family slightly more excusable and other situations where it's explicable but inexcusable, you wouldn't tolerate it. So, yeah, with the mutual dependency in those situations, the recognition, we don't always all behave well all the time, you know. Fault isn't always one way in those situations. So, yes, so the, the notion that humans have survived, actually, because we aren't necessarily the smartest, the fastest, the fittest, <laughs> the most capable, but we survive through our social group behaviour. We're social animals who survived well in whatever the size of this clan. Okay, it hasn't always been nuclear, but it's always been relatively small. Groups of people who protect each other and take care of Mm. each other and in your sense, forgive and forget, yes, because the survival of all of us depends on that capacity.
0: Because, I mean, one of the things I found as a parent and had to adjust to... I's that people in families say things to each other when they're upset or angry that no one, that just wouldn't be heard anywhere else in society, and there's this kind of double track thing going on in your head where you say so you know my kid just said something really rude to me and and my radar is when someone speaks to me like that, that is bad and that is I should react angrily and I don't like that person. But then the other track is, you know, they're my kid, I love them. And then so you've got to kind of develop a different set of rules for, for your family and tolerate things that perhaps you wouldn't tolerate elsewhere.
1: And that's one of the great challenges of families. What is permissible mm. within these close relations is because of the mutual understanding, because of the bond, if you like, because of the attachment. You're not going to break that yeah. easily and because of the enhanced empathy. Like I kind of know where they're coming from and I know on other occasions that's the other way around, et cetera, et cetera, which in the wider world would undoubtedly break those relationships and would not be tolerated. This has created the great dilemma. What is permissible in families that is not permissible elsewhere? So historically yeah. all sorts of things have gone on in families. That, oh, it's okay. It's, you know, it's within families. It's it's therefore permissible. Whereas, obviously, for a lot of things, we've turned around and went, hang on a second, that might not be permissible in families either. You know, that might be quite adverse in its own way, whether it's uh, abuse of various forms, whether it's punishment of various forms, whether it's practices of various forms. Just because it's within a family doesn't make it actually okay. So families and clans, if you like, are now under much more scrutiny. You know, so although we might, under, again, mm. although we might understand it, it may still not be okay, you know. <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, you know, one example is uh, a, a punishment that I remember finding out about in various sitcoms in the 70s and 80s, you're grounded, so you're not allowed to leave this house, kid, because you break the rules. Anywhere else in society, that's <laughs> kidnapping and you go to jail for it.
1: So there are very different rules. Very different. I mean, childhood punishment is still classically one of those things worldwide. What degree of physical punishment is permissible? In families and across generations so historically physical punishment of children as child learning has been quite commonly accepted in Western societies these days quite commonly said to not be okay to be constituted as child abuse in various ways and that kind of issue of the appropriateness or not of degrees of things so beyond physical restriction to actually physical punishment in various ways or having children perform other roles within families in particular ways that you know having to take responsibility for all sorts of things caring roles but also work roles and other sets of things expectations within families to contribute in various ways at different ages have changed quite a lot so you know family behaviors over time are quite contextual you know socially endorsed or not and have changed what hasn't changed Is the emotional connection between particularly young children and the key parenting figures in those particular families be they literally the biological parents or be they extended family grandparents as you mentioned aunts uncles there's the key attachment issues biologically they haven't changed the social construct around who does it and how it's done is constantly changing
0: so let's zero in a bit more on mental health um How do, you know, the adults and children within a household, within a family, influence each other's mental health? I think you've already said that, you know, there's kind of a bit more resilience for conflict between families sometimes than elsewhere. But, you know, every day, how do they make each other's mental health better and worse?
1: Hugely. Hugely. (laughs) In fact, it's a really interesting thing to study because at one level, a lot of study in uh, particularly individual psychology, just sees the individual person and doesn't actually assess the mental health Mm. of the spouse, the child, the other, you know, sets of siblings. Sees one child and doesn't assess the other. The moment you start to actually measure the mental health of the others in the same household, you find these very strong correlations, (laughs) okay? One kid upset, lots of kids upset. One parent upset, lots of parents upset. Parents upset? Kids upsets. So that actually you start to get a much better picture that the mental health, for better or worse, is often much represented by the group than just by the individual who might or might not be in, in contact with, you know, mental health services, for example, or in trouble at school, or in trouble at work, is actually there's a whole household of stuff going on yeah. that better represents the problem than the individual. So classically in child psychiatric, child psychology, et cetera. You know, one doesn't focus on the mental health of just the child who's presenting, although they may have certain temperamental individual characteristics. One goes, okay, who else is here? Who else is actually in and in what state of mind are they? So the recipient. Now, now parents are always thinking, I've got to behave the right way to influence the mental health of my kids. But come on, let's be honest, parents. We are often reacting. We are often having our mental state upturned and perturbed by the state of our children and what they are up to, and what is the state of what's going on within households. So one of the really important things about that whole family kind of perspective, and it's usually played out in relation to young children, but it's actually not just true of young children. It runs right across cohabiting persons. Go measure the mental health of cohabiting persons, and they're strongly correlated. They run in the same direction, for better or worse.
0: So, you know, it's pretty evident or fairly obvious, I would have thought that if you've got one of the parents uh, having mental health issues, anxiety, depression, whatever, addiction, then it's going to influence the other parent if they're living there and also the kids. What if you've got, you know, troubled teen, uh, a kid going through adolescence having some mental health issues? Obviously, that's going to affect the mental health of the parents because they're going to be A, noticing it, B, worried about it, stressed, what's going to happen? Would I be right in thinking sometimes the other siblings, though, can be the most resilient to that? They can kind of withdraw more easily into their own bubble or
1: not? Everyone reacts. Not everyone reacts in the same way. In fact, you raise one of the most interesting and challenging. So we spent a huge amount of time discussing five-year-olds. But personally, I find 15-year-olds much more fascinating. (laughs) actually because yeah. 15 year olds because they might have siblings that might be 17 12 and 8 just for example right they all react to what the 15 year old is also doing as do the parents in really interesting ways Uh, in the sense of should I be a better friend, should I be a better parent, should I be on their side, should I be actually setting boundaries, should I be fighting with the other parent or the grandparent or the aunt who actually thinks we should be doing exactly the different thing and am I in conflict with the school, who really would like the kid to pull their head in and, you know, behave better or the school's just saying, look, things aren't going so well. So, yeah, you see the reaction to that run in different sets of directions. Now, one of the problems for families Mm -hmm. is – getting their act together. <laughs> Rather than everyone just running off and go, okay, I'm gonna cope by not being here. Or I'm gonna cope by just locking the door and hope to come back in three years' time when it's all settled down. You know, or I'm gonna fight. I'm gonna introduce new rules, that grounded one. I'm gonna I'm gonna set boundaries. I'm gonna you know, and the other parents go, nah, forget it. <laughs> you know, when I was fifteen by comparison, this ain't nearly so bad. You know, that's what kids need to do. So lack of agreement and often Individual responses, rather than actually, 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 what would be in the kid's best interest, the fifteen-year-old's best interest, but also collectively, what's the best way for us all to approach the issue, isn't often well worked out. It's often, you know, flying by the seat of your pants kind of stuff, or historical. What I did, what my parents did, you know, I'll, maybe I'll give that a try.
0: But but then what would you do? I mean, if you've got a fifteen-year-old who's, you know, perhaps depressed or or exhibiting signs of of mental illness, how do you enlist a 13-year-old and 11-year-old and say, come on, guys, this is what we got to do? I mean, is it as simple as saying, look, cut them a bit of slack, um, the normal rules don't apply at the moment, or, or what? Right.
1: Now we're going to retreat to the uh, schools of family therapy, if you don't mind, James. <clears throat> now, I belong myself mm. to the structuralists. This may surprise you. This is an Italian school. Right. The Salvador Mnuchin. Minuc- Minuc- I can't even pronounce that. The Mnuchin School of Structural Family Therapy, which is – I think parents should be parents and then kids should be kids in various groups. And that's the first thing you've got to sort out. Yeah. Often when families go wrong, people want to be something else they aren't. Parents want to be their 15-year-old's best friend. They want to be, you know, mothers want to be the 15-year-old's girlfriend, you know, instead of the girlfriends that she's got. Or the fathers want to, you know, fathers want to be something else with their teenage boys. In fact, they want to go out with their teenage boys and consume the same substances that they're consuming and live their teenage years differently. Now, from the structural family therapy point of view, Big mistake. Big mistake. So the first bit is parents getting it sorted. Okay, what is the best response for us? And we're going to be parents, and the 15-year-old is going to be a 15-year-old, right? Because 15-year-olds have never been parents, and they've never been older. (laughs) You're going to explain the particular thing. And then set out the family approach. What is it as parents we're going to do? And then what are the other siblings going to do? And what can we reasonably expect this 15-year-old to do? Now, the 15-year-old's behavior often has impacts on those other kids, which the parents need Mm. to take responsibility for. The 13-year-old or the 8-year-old can't sort it out for themselves, so they've got some rules going on about the particular thing. And if the 15-year-old has particular challenges, yeah, saying actually they do have particular challenges, but here's what we're doing to deal with it. Here's what we're doing as parents. Here's what we're doing with the school or others, and here are the rules that we're going to seek to you – know, that's the structural, that's the structural and, and, family and therapy. And so right
0: with too. those rules, are, are you trying to, if you like, insulate the 13-year-old and the 8-year-old as much as possible so you know, yes, you fifteen year old, you have lots of problems, but you know, one rule is you can't take them out on the Absolutely. thirteen and the eight year old. Is that what you mean? Absolutely,
1: yeah. Right. Uh, the fifteen year old or the seventeen year old who's bashing up the eight year old, or terrorising yeah. or victimising or bullying the twelve year old or something, no, because they're distressed and they have not work out a way to cope. Not on. Or he's bringing a lot of substances in the house and sharing it with the 13-year-old and <laughs> Let's just get off our face together, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's that not right. Well, it's really interesting what happens within families. I say this again. Uh, have a of the old dad that thinks it's a really good idea that they go share the substances with the 15-year-old who's actually, been, you know, in particular kind of ways, and that'll be a good way of containing it or learning to grow up in particular kinds of ways. So, you know, in response to challenging and difficult situations, People do stuff that sounds a bit odd, but in fact, they don't actually sort out what's best to be done and then seek to protect others who may be at risk, like other siblings, as a consequence of that. So a lot of abuse that takes place in families that just gets normalised. Oh, it's okay for the 16-year-old to bash up the 8-year-old or it's all right for the 16-year-old to share with the 13-year-old their substances and whatever else. You know, doesn't get dealt with in an appropriate way. is very problematic. Right.
0: So talking about family dynamics in a, in a more general way and how what happens in a family can influence our, our growth into adulthood, as an only child, what's going on with sibling rivalry and conflict? Like the closest I've got is living with flatmates of a similar age in my 20s, all of whom we're all trying to make our way, you know, in life. But there wasn't any rivalry, whereas siblings seem to be able to – have conflict and rivalry about pretty much anything all the time. What's happening no. there? So,
1: James, your only child status here is a problem. Lots of other people. <laughs> lots of, you've been the one precious one, okay? One precious the one. Yeah. Precious, you know, I've, got a, I've got a single child. China's had a one-child policy for many generations. Very problematic for the child, actually, because they always know they're special. You know, mm. They are special. The whole world revolves around. Two- Uh, one of my favorite family therapists, she makes the comment that two is the perfect number. Because two, they can always have you can have children, have always have a friend, a set of two. You can always have two children versus two parents. You know, each parent can take a child and therefore each child can be special. There's a certain symmetry to the whole thing. Because there is a competitiveness for relationships, for attention, for affection from within those particular things, you know, both ways around. Parents like to have affection relations relation to their kids. Kids like to have affection relations relation to each other. And there's a competition for parental attention and affection. Now, chuck in a few more. Three, four, six. <laughs> you can see, you know, hey, hey, did anyone notice me? The Jan Brady effect. Did anyone notice me in the middle? Do I have a name even? Can my father even remember me? Can he tell the difference between me and the other six, you know? So the issue of place, of attention, and, of course, you've got different sets of characteristics playing out
0: and And we should say at this point that you or some listeners will know that this be you, you you have great credentials here having six kids, and I know you know the name of the oldest and the youngest. I won't I won't put you on the spot by asking to name the other four.
1: So I come, I, I have the great advantage in life from coming from a very large number, seven originally, and uh, I now have um, six. Uh, I've often remarked two is perfect as the previous family therapist. It's so perfect I've done it three times. And it's a marvellous set of experiences uh, of the value of large sib ships. There are a lot of relationships. There's a lot of potential. But also there is the potential for conflicts, for alliances, for differences and for problems to break out, which is often very difficult, particularly in nuclear families, for small numbers of parents and busy parents to transact so that, sibling relationships are really important themselves and how they play out at different ages and with different kids facing different emotional issues, puberty, just moving through life, developing other relationships and the stability of those particular relationships or not. So sibling rivalry is one aspect of it. I mean, sibling, you might see the sib ship, the, the, the developing really important relationships over longer periods with different numbers of people within the family and others, obviously fabulous opportunities for learning and for closeness. As, as a pathway to later adult relationships in different ways. So, you know, that we, in a sense, people's everyday life is filled with the transactions of emotional relationships, just basically what we're doing most of the time. And if you've got a lot of them going on in your own household, as one of my sister's remarks, we never needed to go outside the household. We had so much going on inside the household, you know. We were busy. We were busy with everyday so, relationships.
0: Yeah. So so that leads to another thing. You would think that family members would be in the best position to pick up when another member has a mental health issue. However, I know of a number of cases where a kindergarten teacher has pointed out to a parent, you know, a concerned, involved parent, that they think, listen, your kid's I think, has an issue with anxiety or your kid has a an issue with, with something else. And the parent has gone, oh, I didn't realise. So are, are families in the best position to pick this stuff up or are they sometimes
1: too close to, to notice? Not like only that? are they often too close, often they normalise abnormal things. Oh, yes. we're all like that. Oh, Uncle Fred exactly. was like that. My brother's like that. My uncle's like that. We're all like that. And that's what our family is like. So often, you see some unusual stuff, normalised as being that's what our family is like, which is actually not in the interests. And it is actually, you point out, James, often preschool teachers and primary school teachers go, you know what, your kid's a bit X, Y, Z, you know, in a particular way, or there's stuff going on or there's stuff going on between kids in the same family, which the family has normalised, but actually in the wider world, Mm -hmm. subject to more objective uh, observation, actually isn't okay in particular ways. And that's often where... Conflict does arise in, and and often sociocultural and other difficulties arise. You know, suddenly the family's behaviour is put in a wider social context and everyone else goes, "Uh, I don't think so. I think there's a problem here. Um, Very difficult for younger children, very difficult. I've spent a lot of my professional life often talking to people who've grown up in very unusual family circumstances. And I kind of go did anyone ever, did anyone ever comment, did anyone ever say? And these are interesting stories about, Mm. no, we just always thought that was normal until we went out in the wider world and found out it wasn't normal. Or occasionally people said, occasionally a teacher, occasionally someone else, maybe a church person, maybe some others said it was a bit unusual. But, you know, our parents and our family said, no, 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 it's normal. That's the way we are. So, you know, it became a kind of um, explaining away through normalize and it was really not the business of anyone else to comment on what went on within families so you know which has a kind of secrecy and a and a problematic environment for many kids trapped in those environments
0: when we talk to Rick Morton and it's funny every second or third episode I find myself remembering things that Rick said, and I'd really urge you to listen to his episode uh, if you haven't already. He was talking about the patterns that he grew up with and more specifically that he felt his father didn't love him and how that had, or loved him as well as he could have, and how that influenced Rick as an adult and made him unwilling to open up emotionally to others. Then he recognised that and then he deliberately kind of, Sought help to change that pattern, so in some ways, taking that as an example, i guess we're we're prisoners aren 't we of 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 our families and our upbringing, and those patterns are deeply embedded in us, and we find ourselves repeating those patterns even if they're not in our best interests as, as an adult. on the other hand, if you can recognize them and kind of almost like a maths equation, think, okay, the reason I do this is because I grew up in that sort of environment. We, we're, we're not powerless. We we can push back on those patterns and change.
1: Yeah, so two important things here. I think as we've discussed in elsewhere, and you're going to discuss uh, Rick's episode, which is a great one. I'd also recommend our one about what runs in families. You know, the, the environment yes. isn't everything. It's, it's very important when you are young, but it isn't everything. There are other sources of differences that run genetic and other experiences outside the family. So when you're young, they do matter. In terms of what matters within families, and this has been extensively studied, it is the degree of care, expressed positive emotion, warmth, empathy, love, between parents and kids that really matters. Now, if you see that in a dimension of it, if you get lots of it, very good. Now, you can see, actually, in very large families how sometimes kids can feel maybe there's not enough love to go around. You know, (laughs) they haven't had enough of it because there was 15 others competing for the same thing, although they may... (laughs) I only got, only got one six. I only got one, sixth <laughs> I
0: only got one of six. Love. I wanted it Not dead. uncommon
1: for people to say that, you know, in large families. I only got one six. I didn't get enough, particularly of what they see as the maternal bit or the warmth bit or whoever the key. They may have got it from other siblings. Of course, older children often do this with younger children in such families, in particular ways. But that care factor, that love factor, is the critical dimension. When it is in deficit kids are in trouble the other things have been studied like sort of control and discipline and rigidity and lots of other things don't matter that much different cultures have different ways of organizing all the rules within all cultures it's the care factor so what rick was alluding to is because of his mum being absent things that happened, been good things his perception of the lack of care from one key feature dad in his case really mattered and the absence you might imply of some other you know overarching kind of influence. There are lots of families where people say, look <laughs> mum loved everyone we don't really care what Dad did <laughs> you know the care thing was so obvious or through an older sister or somebody else or aunt, the care was there. So there is a very clear pathway between the degree or the depth of that love care factor and adult success in adult relationships in later life. If it was there, strong chance, You'll recreate other relationships having had that experience. When there's been a deficit, then it's problematic as to why. Do you blame yourself? It hasn't happened. It's not clear how you establish that then in later relationships, in later life. And then it requires exactly what you said, James, and what Rick so well articulated. Got to think that through. Okay, okay. There's something about the way I'm now behaving in other relationships which reflects that lack of care, that experience of being loved and cared for when I was younger.
0: As probably 40% of pop songs have said in the last 40 years, it's all about the love. Love is the answer. Um, what about parents separating? You know, maybe we should stay together for the, for the sake of the kids. Is, it, is, is kids growing up in a home where parents argue a lot bad? If parents know that it's not really working, should they just bite the bullet and separate? Should they try and stay together? This has
1: also been extensively studied, and is constantly misrepresented Mm. in much popular public debate. The stay together for kids because that's good for them is bad for them. That fighting parents, conflicting parents, parents harming each other, parents inflicting emotional harm on each other, exposing their kids to it day after day, week after week, and somehow saying it's good, we stayed together for the kids, the outcome for the kids is very bad. Parents who actually separate not so much out of conflict. This is, come back to the complexity here. Many parents do separate because of conflict, and the conflict continues after they've separated, or in fact, it may even be worse, right? That's bad. But separation where kids where kids fundamentally understand that their parents care for them, even though they're no longer living together, those kids have better outcomes in these particular areas. So again, it's, the, it's not the being together or not being together. It's the care bit. Now, of course, because conflict is often the source of separation people then blame the separation <laughs> it ain't the separation it's the conflict if you stay together and conflicted even worse even worse for a lot of couples and a lot of parents when they separate conflict goes down and they can get back to establishing their own relationships i talked to a lot of dads who say i didn't really have that great a relationship before with my kids before we separated but you know what even though i spend less time with them now i actually have my own relationship with them now <laughs> I actually have a relationship that I didn't actually have I have a better relationship but it's different on an ongoing basis very very often emotionally traumatic and testing for parents because of the sense and particularly the parents where the non-residential parent kids aren't living with them etc that they that the absence of access to their kids is extremely distressing but relationship wise from the kids point of view that and I must say in, in my own child and growing up in many families from a Catholic background where lots of families stayed together, even though it was clearly highly dysfunctional, Mm -hmm. had very bad outcomes for the kids.
0: Having said that, though, is it fair to say that if you're in a relationship that isn't working, if you don't have any kids, it's kind of easier to bail. But if you do have kids, it could be a spur to try and find the source of the conflict and... Work through it and maybe get to a better yes. model rather that you know, you bail less, less well, uh, readily. And that can sometimes lead to almost something. Yeah. So
1: a very strong motivation often for couples to sort out their own difficulties is, in fact, kids. They want to create the appropriate environment and a stable environment. So I talk about the care factor. The other thing that matters for kids, of course, is the stability factor. If kids are all over the place, if mm. kids are abandoned, if, if there's inconsistency and breaking of these relationships all the time and don't know whether key individuals, parents and others, are coming and going, that's also really bad. So that, that, that motivation um, when, like all relationships, it's in trouble or there's problems and kid, and parents decide, okay, we're going to try and sort the problems out. <laughs> So we stay together to provide an ongoing stable and caring relationship for our kids. Great. It's often a, often a very strong motivation for couples to get their act together and actually deal with the sources of their conflict because it is in their kids' interest to provide a stable and caring environment. But I think the reality is the wide so- world here of lots and lots of kids and as we all live longer lives you know, what is normative is really fascinating. In my own world, I'm often amused by two things. One stage, one of my kids, um, I think it was four kids, you know, did a family picture of mum with four kids. And the teacher said, anyone missing from that? And one of the kids said, no. Nope. <laughs> I brought it home and I said, Dumb. was I missing? Dad missing? Oh, look, you don't really care. <laughs> Another kid at a later point actually had six and then had two mums and a dad. And the teacher said, you can't have two mums and a dad. <laughs> That's not a family. And he said, "But I do have two mums and a dad. you know. yeah so the right. really interesting, I use these both examples of the absent dad and then too many mums. there's a whole normative thing going on in the wider world of telling kids what is normal also all the time, as distinct from what are the relationships that actually matter and are stable in a kid's life over time. And most, you know if you if you go for the reality these days that most kids, in whatever proportion, 40%, 50% of kids are going to live in a situation where their parents do separate at some particular point in time or they're going to have multiple parenting figures mm. is normative. It's not abnormal. Hence my objection to your nuclear yeah. family oh, earlier on, James. There are multiple parenting figures, even when you just think about parents, little grandparents, aunts, uncles.
0: What would you say? Say there's someone listening today who um, they're a parent in a family and one of their kids, maybe they're a teen, it's just not going well and they think, you know, when they were seven, we had a great relationship, and it's just gone down the gurgler. We're fighting all the time. There's a lot of conflict. Aside from that, our family's going pretty well. You know, there's another sibling or two, and things are working out there. But that one relationship I have with that kid is, is really problematic, and it's not getting better. In fact, it's getting worse. What are the steps you can take
1: to, to try and make something like that. So I think one of the things he's recognised in the challenging times. I mean, there is discussion of families constantly with little kids, five-year-olds and stuff. Actually, I'd say the most challenging times are absolutely with 15-year-olds. So that point of of yeah. development of individuation outside the family, but kids are still dependent on the families, even though they're physically kind of grown up, they're not emotionally grown up. And to understand transitionally, that's a really difficult time for families, really difficult for parental relationships. One of my favourite uh, adult uh, psychologist Kathleen Merrick in the United States says, The most important thing for a teenage girl is a really good dad, <laughs> right? As the mum and daughter head into really difficult times, ah, no, no pressure. pressure.
0: Given that I've yeah, got James, three, this of-
1: one's right up to you, okay? The most important thing, and, and she has studied this Ooh. transgenerationally a lot, it's a really difficult period for mums with emerging mature female daughters. There's going to be a degree of conflict. Now, mums are terribly important, but she makes the comment, a stable dad who can just continue to not get into really worse situations or not make the situation worse. So the stability of relationships, the sharing of these things across those periods, recognising that is one of the really difficult periods. Now we have even longer bits where adult kids are staying at home even longer due to housing affordability and social kind of things. And then you have Mm. other stuff of... Um, families moving back in, bringing their own new kids along. So, in fact, we have the rebirth of transgenerational families because no one can afford to live separately. So, you know, and also then encouraging at various ages. Um, I've always thought the American idea of sending your kids away to college is a fabulous idea. Just discussing earlier, James, you know, at a certain point, kids have got to get out of home to appreciate how good their families actually are. They've got to get out and actually – transact the wider world so we have really interesting cultural and and social factors going on about how families are having to cope at different ages so i think that's right the point you made just because a member of the family is having particular difficulties doesn't mean the family itself is dysfunctional you know they're going to face families will face really important challenges birth of a new child you know classic birth of the first child (laughs) for most couples' relationships, pretty challenging. You know, birth of new children into those particular things as, as parents have to change roles, as mothers have to do particular things, as new siblings come along. You know, families go through stages and developments that create inherent challenges. If you're struggling in those periods, periods, it doesn't mean you've got a bad family, you know, it <laughs> actually.
0: What about this? Is one of the things I reckon I, I've learned. So um, sometimes the argument, I've learned how to lose arguments sometimes, not all the time, but more than I used to even when I'm right. So one of the arguments we've had in my family is, and this is because of you, Ian, um, is I say you know, no no caffeine until you're of a certain age because you told me that developing brains shouldn't have caffeine. And so I had a very, 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 very long argument with one of my teens about that. They wanted to have caffeine. I didn't want them to have caffeine. And I was laying down the law. And then I went away and thought about it and said, No, it would be much better for me. That argument isn't about whether she can have caffeine or not. It's about her having autonomy over her life and the ability to make her own decisions. And and once you recognize that, then you think, well, it's not an argument I should win, actually, it's, a, a, and impose no caffeine. It's an argument I should lose and say, these are the arguments why you shouldn't have caffeine while your brain's growing. Um, But, you know, it's your call and you're old enough now. And once I lost the argument, I won because she kind of said, well, good. I just wanted the right to decide my caffeine future. And to be honest, I hate the taste <laughs> of it. Um, so is, is one good strategy to step back from whatever the argument's about and work out what it's really about?
1: Yes. The argument is never about the topic. The arguments yeah. in families about relationships, about quality, about power, about individuation, about changes in status, they're never about the topic. They're always about the other issue. And In fact, I would recommend to people another one of our guests, Daisy Turnbull's new books about questions to ask your teenagers, you know, is actually to inquire. in It tends to try to shift the conversation from what you think it's about, going out, taking substances, rules to be set, doing your homework, whatever, which well, is not really about that. I mean, the marvellous thing about teenagers is they move from being immature to being immature. They're on a long – it's actually a good outcome. (laughs) You know, in the long term, it's a good outcome.
0: (laughs) And and they've got to get there in some way. Like if you continue to tell them how to live their lives, they're not going to get there, are they? They're going to kind of emerge from the family unit – uh, without enough experience
1: and autonomy to make good Exactly. In. So going back to my structural family therapy, they will emerge from the childhood status to establish themselves as adults and their own families and their own transgenerational sets of issues. And the individuation issues of adolescence, mid to later adolescence, are really tricky in that particular way, really tricky mm. if parents are trying to stay in control of the decision-making through that particular process as distinct from the autonomy the development of relationships externally if you haven't worked it out already 15 year olds relationships with their friends are so much more important than their relationships with you and in terms of what their friends say and what their social groups say you know your your content input has become irrelevant <laughs> to that discussion but the emotional relationship hasn't become irrelevant and i think one of the things that happens tragically or sadly is to lose the relationship during that particular period fighting over stuff that yeah. just isn't worth the price of fish. It's not worth fighting over that stuff. It's not what it's about. It's about individuation. Sometimes earlier on, though, and sometimes during that area, though, protection still matters. Kids can still make dumb decisions. You know, so mm. the the balance between uh, protectiveness and wanting to uh, assist and and keep safe, which is entirely understandable, versus the experimentation with the world is really tricky. So I actually think, yeah. you know, the most difficult family years – now are often with teenagers in families with really parents who are very engaged with their teenagers but these are hard tricky business
0: yeah so yeah the other thing i've, I've uh learned <laughs> the two things i've learned it's not many in 19 years is lose an argument every now and again that's sometimes the best way and the other thing is just because you ha- just because you've got a 15 year old and by the time they've been 15 for 11 months, you kind of worked out a few things about parenting a 15-year-old, doesn't mean that you know how to parent a 16-year-old. So when they're suddenly they're a year older, and actually a lot of those rules were relevant to a 15-year-old, you got to chuck out and rewrite because... They're all subtly different, and that happens every single year from one to 19. So I guess that's the, the challenge, but also the adventure. It's a very
1: dynamic it. process. Just, just two other points here. very dynamic. Yeah. And also different parenting for different kids. D- kids have different temperaments. One thing's very hard to explain to the family is, why does that rule apply to him and not her? Why me, not him, because mm. you're different. You know, actually, it's okay for parents to have different rules and different responses for different kids within the families, okay, which recognises the actual differencing. The other one, a bit hard to say in this setting because it's nonverbal, is the way people show emotion in families. I'm reminded of a family I stayed with in New Zealand, dad, mum, four boys. And when the boys left the house with their dad, they all kissed each other. I thought, wow, that's a bit different to my family. Mm. But they just had this spontaneous way that they'd always dealt with each other in this warm, emotional kind of way. And that kind of non-verbal communication—no need for the dad and the sons to say anything. They just had a way of communicating with each other. And I thought, that's how families really work. And if you get the non-verbal bit right much harder, much easier than to get the verbal bits right.
0: So that was all very interesting. We are we are heavily influenced by our families and by our upbringing, but we are not ultimately prisoners. Uh, prisoners of them. Changing those patterns might be hard, but it is possible. By the way, this is kind of part one of two parts. We're going to be doing a Christmas special that is all about the particular dynamics that can play out over families over Christmas, where it's all supposed to be wonderful and fantastic, but actually there's can be a lot of tension, a lot of conflict, um, a lot lot of people being arrested on on Christmas Day and all that sort of thing so the the complexities of families over the Christmas period and family celebrations will be explored um in a in a I guess a part two of this. if you've got any questions or comments I want to suggest further topics for us and thank you to all those who've been doing that send us an email at Minding two at gmail.com. That's minding your mind numeral two at gmail.com. Minding your mind is supported by future generation global and the generous philanthropic donations from families who support ongoing research into youth mental health. Further help's available from Headspace, Beyond Blue, Head to Health and Lifeline. Just Google them of course or you can call Lifeline on 131114. Talk to you next time.